Welcome to the Rhythms Podcast. I'm Brian Wise, editor of the magazine. I'm joined by Stuart Coop, music writer and broadcaster and senior contributing editor to Rhythms as well. This week, our guest is Sylvie Simmons a London-born, San Francisco-based, acclaimed music journalist who is the author of a number of books, including I'm Your Man, The Life of Leonard Cohen, an international bestseller, and books on Debbie Harry, Neil Young, Serge Gainsbourg, and Johnny Cash. Sylvie was once the US correspondent for Sounds, a regular contributor to the US rock magazine Cream, and later to Q Magazine, then Mojo, where she is still a contributing editor. Sylvie's also a singer-songwriter, ukulele player, and recording artist. Her latest album, Blue on Blue, was featured in Rhythms last year. Stuart and I caught up with Sylvie by Zoom. Sylvie, first up, just uh, just a simple question. How many translations and editions have there been of your Leonard Cohen book? It seems like every... Every week there's another edition comes out. And there's another coming sometime soon. It's Lithuanian. There you go. It's, it, it's, a, it's an absolute miracle. It's about 30, about wow. 30. But then I am counting as American and English as separate editions because, you know, they had to translate trousers to pants and things like that and put U's in where they didn't exist in American. What, what did we get in Australia? Did you have to make changes for the Australian one? No, you got the English one, sorry. I know that there's a bit of a problem there, but, you know, they may have changed it a little and didn't tell me. You've, you've just reminded me that I saw recently a film starring Gabriel Byrne titled Death of a Ladies' Man, inspired by the Leonard Cohen song. Have you, have you seen that film? You know, I haven't. It didn't come into one of my sort of lockdown you know, uh, things, but I love Gabriel Byrne and I can see he has that same sort of like, you know, moody sort of sexuality that, that Leonard has. So it certainly sounds like something I want to watch. Mm, yeah, it was, it was fascinating and it was interesting to, you know, see him in character uh, portraying that particular character in the film, sort of inspired by Leonard Cohen. But anyway, that, that, that's a a tangent. Oh, it's a good tangent, and I probably would have enjoyed it more than I enjoyed Marianne and Leonard, that awful film. Was it that bad? Well, it just, it was called Marianne and Leonard, but it virtually said nothing about Marianne. It was like a potted history of Leonard. And the uh, the filmmaker was saying, here's a picture of me when I was 18 and I slept with Marianne. It was a strange mess of things, but it has some nice photos and so I guess a lot of people liked it but I'm one of the uh, you know one of the what would you say unconverted to the film. I, I guess one thing Sylvie that that people will be interested to know is just about that process of getting the support and the engagement of an artist like Leonard Cohen to enable the writing you know of, of a book like yours which you know, you, you had incredible access. And, and, and I guess my, my, my double point question is, you know, having just <clears throat> written a biography of Paul Kelly, who had written his own book, just how you set out to establish a point of difference with your book. Of course, there had been a number of other Cohen books prior to, um, to yours. So I guess, I guess first off, how did, you know, how did you get that, that confidence and that engagement with him? Hmm. That's probably... A- going to have a very long answer, but I'll try and shorten it. Uh, First of all, I take, uh, I don't really agree that there was that many books on Leonard Cohen. There really wasn't. They've been coming out more towards the end of his life and after his death. You can't move for them now, you know. But at the time, um, he was very underserved by biographers. I have shelves behind me of 
of books on Bob Dylan, for example, that, you know, everybody's got a different approach. I'll get something with him. And then there was hardly anything worth reading on Leonard that was still in existence. There was probably some old ones that I'd missed. Um, how did I get his support? With a little persistence, but it also had begun in, in 20, uh, no, what was it, 2001, when I was still living in London. Now I'm in San Francisco, California. And I was interviewing Leonard for Mojo. I had a bit of time with him, but it was one of those really long, in-depth interviews. And we ended up spending three days doing this. No nights, I should say, just days. And uh, at the end of it, I thought, this is the best interview in the world, bar none. Yeah. And of course, when I transcribed it, I realized that like with everybody else, he charmed me, blown smoke in my face, said some very wise and interesting things. But it was like... I'm going to get to the bottom of you. <laughs> I'm going to sort this out and do it properly. And he had said during that interview, I think it was day two, uh, he'd had a copy of my book on Serge Gainsbourg, The Fistful of Gitan. And he said, I got his book and he was being a bit flirty. And he said, I knew Serge. And I said, I wish you'd told me that before I wrote the book. But we got talking and he loved the book, he said, and said, I wish that somebody would write a book like that about me. Dot, 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 dot. <laughs> so I'm dead so I just I couldn't wait and in the end you know it wasn't like he immediately said great I think he was a little thinking what does she want me to do but I said all I want you to do is not get in the way you know if I ask to speak to somebody and they call you which they will could you say you know <laughs> just say nothing <laughs> have no opinion on it whatsoever and he said oh yes of course darling I should say that all women are darling and he didn't interfere um, I had the, the best of both worlds because I had the access, but he had no interest in changing anything or even reading it. I asked him if he wanted to see it, and it was like he said, I trust you. So you can't really do much better than that. Right. So, so at, no, at no point were you doing what I had to do, sitting at home with my stomach churning because I had actually had my subject ask to, you know, agree to read the book after I'd offered it and been incredibly nervous. So you didn't have to go through, no, okay. No. If he read it, and I believe he did, it was done quite privately. The only reason I believe he did is because of something his son told me, but I won't share that. Right. Sylvie, is it possible to get too close to your subject? I mean, how do you retain the objectivity? I mean, if you're a fan of someone and you're writing about them, does that present a bit of a difficulty? Well, it depends how close you get, you know. <laughs> I mean, there was a, when my book came out, uh, when I'm your man, The Life of Leonard Cohen came out in, I guess, 2012. Um, it was at the same time a book came out on General Portraeus, which means nothing to me, but it was this big deal in the military in America, and it was his biography, and it had come out that he had slept with his biography. And so I remember a couple of Canadian newspapers <laughs> said to me, did you sleep with him? I was like, of course not. I mean, it was bad enough, you know, having to spend my life thinking about him. It would have been more like, you know, sort of self-pleasure because he lived in my head for so long. But really, it is hard to get out of the kind of the detective work and actually do the writing. That's probably the hardest thing because every time you find out something, it seems to give you a little light bulb in your head, which goes, of course it happened that way. Of course it would have happened that way. Of course he would have made that decision. And then you kind of start moving on to the next person that has been put your way, you know, because once you interview somebody else, somebody says, hey, did you speak to this person? And, and so on it goes. And so I think the hardest thing is not to get too close to the subject. For me, I'm still deep down a journalist. 
you know, you can adore somebody and their music and everything about them. But if they've put a bad album out, you know, you're going to let the world know about that. But it was more this case of just living with him in my head for pretty much 24-7. Occasionally, I'd call him and tell him a dream I'd had of him. And he would laugh. And I'd say, what was your dream? You know, it wasn't of me. But it would be these interesting sort of relationships where if I did check in, I'd say, do you want to hear this dream I had? And he'd say, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a sort of closeness. But at the same time, as soon as I got back to my computer, there was no feeling like, oh, this will upset him. Or, you know, if you say this, he's going to be mad. It was that this is the truth. This is the truth that I found. And everything was double, triple checked. And at the very end of the process, pretty much, I went to see him and did some interviews that were pretty much just yes and no questions. I'd said I'd tried to find these answers out from so many other people close to you. But in this, it's only you and this one person, like your ex-partner, who would know the answer. I asked her, now I'm going to ask you. And that was, I think, probably the least comfortable time. But he did you know, he did answer these things. So I was, I lucked out with my subject and it just happened to be a subject that was really, really dear to me and still is. How did you approach, you know, going way back? I mean, we, we all know that um, 40 and 50 year old memories can, in the case of some people, be distorted and, and people's role in, um, in certain incidents is far greater than maybe other people remember it. Was it just a case of getting multiple viewpoints and then trying to distill what probably happened way, way back? It's a combination of multiple viewpoints, as long as those people are trusted witnesses. Because mm-hmm. quite often, if you're talking to somebody, you know, I've, I mean, I've been a music journalist now for 45 years. <laughs> I started when I was two. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, you get an instinct. You know, you know when they're when they're not telling the truth, usually. Okay. I think even with Leonard, when I was slightly overcharmed by the things he was saying, because they just sounded so good, <laughs> there was this instinct there that he was you know, hiding things a bit. But um, that was part of it. And the other thing is just detective work. The detective work is pretty amazing. From what I how I started is I figured, well, Leonard started his life in Montreal. I signed the book deal in, I think it was October, three years or so before the book came out. And I thought, well, I'm going to go straight away and start in um, in Montreal because that's where Leonard started. And then I thought, well, I'll wait till about December when it starts getting really, really, really cold because I want to feel what that place was like because there'd be poems or things he wrote that would talk about this almost, the kind of cold that mugs you, like the kind of heat you get out there, you know, that really feels personal and brutal. And I wanted to experience that. As soon as I got there, I hated experiencing it. (laughs) But I was there and I started by going to the synagogue where his um, birth was um, registered in the book. So, and I knew that his great-grandfather had founded, or was it his great-grandfather had founded the synagogue and uh, I thought, this is a good place to go, just to see what I find out. And then when you speak to somebody, they say, well, did you speak to this guy? He was the head of McGill University or go and speak to the rabbi. Or So you start in this little thing and it starts expanding. And then you meet some kind of folk, folk singer who now is in her you know, late 70s, but had been one of the sort of uh, people who had followed him and, and loved his music and played music with him and other things. Um, over the years so it just kind of expanded and as I say you get rather addicted to that life of just spending your entire (laughs) advance just getting on planes and going places and interviewing people 
I know from a lot of people that tends to be a, a, a tendency to, to uh, spend a large proportion of that advance traveling and then realize you've actually got to write the book and make a living yeah. at the same time. But. Yeah, it was, but you know, it was such a wonderful subject that in a way it was sort of unfolding as I was writing it. it uh, I know I liked it and it seemed like a lot of other people liked it. And so I was really pleased that it, that it came out the way it did. And it took a while as well after the book was done to sort of wash Leonard out of my brain, if you like. It did become in a way like I was a human. What would Leonard Cohen do? <laughs> I'd be speaking to somebody and I think Leonard Cohen wouldn't say that. So you have to kind of take out, you know, the empty bottles and empty the ashtrays of your mind and, and move on to, you know, an article on Tom Waits. So even then I'd say, you know, Leonard Cohen said to me once, uh, oh, you know, when I was asking him too many questions, he said, I like the way Tom Waits answers his questions. <laughs> Just use his answers. Were you writing songs during, during that period or did you have to put that part of your creative life some, no, I, I kind of didn't have as much time for them. I'd been writing them since about probably about 2007 is when I started, which was a year after I was gifted a ukulele. At that time, I'd been in America for a couple of years, but I was living a bit like a monk and in a little studio apartment and I hadn't bought anything out from England, like my instruments, like a guitar. And so somebody gave me a uke and it was like, love. And I wanted to more the ukulele than anything else. But I just was writing songs, but I hadn't any intention of recording them. I was planned to be amused, planned as much as you plan anything when you're a teenager. It's like you have some mad idea. I had a mad idea of being a singer-songwriter on the grounds that I had a famous jumbo guitar. It was so beautiful. Yeah. And um, I played it. And I could play a few chords and they were nearly all minor chords. I love sad songs. And uh, I thought I'll be a singer-songwriter just on that basic basis that I knew the whole of Joni Mitchell's Blue by Heart. So I went to sing it in a pub with about, you know, four people and three people actually was in the band, band <laughs> kind of the group. And I think there was probably an audience of just about that many, maybe a couple more. And I just was terrified. So, you know, the old cliche of if you, you know, you're useless at being a singer, songwriter or a musician, you become a rock journalist. I followed that to the law and became one. But then later, when the Leonard Cohen book came out, I had assumed somehow that after all that work and everything, that my uh, publishers in America would want to send me on all these book tours, you know. But I don't know if it was just me or they just don't do that anymore. You know, that's something from the past, and unless you're J.K. Rowling or something. And so... Virtually, I had my set up my own tour. Well, I completely set up my own tour, but with help from musician friends who were saying, hey, come and play in our local record shop or come and play at our local whatever. And that just took on a life of its own. And I started singing Leonard Cohen songs on my uke, being a little Leonard jukebox for a year. And at the end of it, I guess I got over the stage fright. And my friend Hal Gelb from Giant Sand had been saying that I ought to record an album for ages. He liked my songs. And uh, so that's how that all began. So when you become a musician or try to become a musician, does that give you a completely different perspective on the people that you're writing about? So rather than writing from a sort of a theoretical point of view, you're actually, you've had experience writing songs yourself. Does that put a different perspective on the way you approach musicians? Not 
really, I think I always approached it in a kind of fairly holistic, sorry, that's a very woo-woo new age word, but it's sort of, it's better than organic because everybody uses that. But it was that thing where, um, I mean, I played music all my life pretty much since I was a kid and I sang music on stage when I was a little girl. So there was always this love of the song and the melody and the words. So there was always that side of it. And there was this period when I first started where I was as snarky as the rest of the British rock press because I thought that's what you what you did, you know, <laughs> that there was certain bands that you hate, had to hate on principle, even if deep in your heart, you know, you had a little spot there, some, you know, a couple of songs by the police and you had to love Queen. But these things were against all the law for music journalists. So yeah, I had lots, lots of that kind of snarky moments back in the day. And I also wrote for Cream Magazine, which was known for its irreverence, mm. shall we say politely. And uh, I think I approached it, I think a little bit, My some of my reviews might have changed a bit at the time when I was married to a songwriter. And I think it was just more out of, you know, sort of hearing from him like, oh, well, you know, it's really cruel when somebody says something like that about a song you write. So I think I could, that sort of softened me a little. But after 10 years when that marriage broke up, nonetheless, I didn't have an excuse to be kind to songwriters. It just it just kind of happened again in that sort of organic way. And I think also that magazines by the time the 90s came around were very different from the ones in the 70s when I started because they were a bit more polite. Everything was a bit more, you know, kind of in reverence of the musician, as should be, really. Especially, say, Mojo. They don't really want those snarky reviews. If you don't like something, they just give it to somebody else to review. Very early on, I or what seems like a long time ago now, so we, I, I read your collection of, of short stories. I mean, was, was fiction ever something you thought of pursuing beyond that? I mean, was that was that an initial love or a later love or a, a mid-term um, engagement, shall we say? I was actually writing books since I was little. I would get all of these exercise books, <laughs> just write a story, you know, just do all these stories. I'd show you some if we were being a visual thing. There's one on the shelf. And uh, next door to, to where I lived with my mum and dad when I was up until I was 11, so I must have been really young, these people next door were in publishing and they had these books that were kind of looked like a real book, but they had blank pages in. So at that point, I was really happy. I was like, writing, writing real books. So that that was always there, the writing. But the writing of those, uh, those really dark, you know, I thought they were funny, but they're dark short stories, was just a kind of phase. I'd, it was in the um, late 80s. In, I was still living in LA back then. No, I wasn't. I was back in England, but I was spending a lot of time in LA and uh, interviewing these groups. That it just seemed that the rock had become so kind of corrupted. You know, it really was celebrity corrupts and absolute celebrity corrupts, absolutely. And so I wrote these little kind kind of fables in a way as a get my own back because most of them started with something true there was a little bit of truth in all of them except for the one about me killing my mother that wasn't true she was still alive until she was 90 but most of them had this little kernel of something that would happen you know and it sounds weird, but I just kind of riffed on it and then made it into fiction. But it's out of uh, it's out of print now, so I guess I'll have to self-publish it if I want to get it back in the world. And then after after Leonard, you moved on to a you know I guess 
unauthorised, uh, you know, book about Deborah Harry. You know, I mean, that must have been a very different process, you know, because when, you know, having done one of those myself, I mean, you are beholden to the the story that the subject wants to tell. And, and that detective work that you talk about, I guess, doesn't doesn't play play a role in a, in a book like that? It did uh, play an awful bit of role. Uh-huh. Quite often what happens, I found interviewing not just Debbie, but but people who have been in the business for years who are the front person, they don't always have the best memories. They aren't the ones who tend to keep the journal. You know, you go and speak to the drummer or the bass player, they've got so much information and everything. Mm-hmm. So um, with Debbie, I took took it on because it was meant to be a short project, which turned out not to be the case. But I took it on because I was always very intrigued by her in that whenever she gave interviews, she didn't really give much of herself away. You know, she if you look back at all of the interviews that she's done. And so I thought this would be really interesting to do. And uh, but it was something I didn't like the process of ghostwriting too much. So I'll probably well, it's meant to be a co-write, but somehow my name fell off the cover. But uh, it is all ghostwriters say, so I, I, you know, it was it was interesting. But it's not the so it wasn't the same kind of fascination of uh, of somebody like Leonard Cohen. Though I loved Blondie as a band, you know, when I was a kid, for sure. Not in the same way that I loved Leonard Cohen's music. And you know, an, an obvious question, and you, and you already know that it's coming. But I mean, is is there a subject that uh, has engaged you in the same way as as Leonard did? That is this, is a, an upcoming book or something that you're working on that you can talk about and the answer can be I can't talk about it if you want no no, there's nothing I haven't really got anything there's sort of various back burners but they're so far back they're in another apartment you know (laughs) there's things where I've thought I'm going to do this I'm going to do that I did um, get offered a book deal at some point a while ago quite a while ago on um, Tom Waits but uh, so I approached Tom's people uh, because I had interviewed him and got along fine with him Uh, but uh, the answer was he doesn't want a book hates books you know pretty much it was a locked door that could not be opened I've tried to like prize it open again a couple of times but it's always the same so I figured that if I was to do that book and I would like to because he is a fascinating fascinating man fascinating musician and interesting actor too so I would like to but the idea of constantly being blocked from the A list of people I would like to talk to means in a way that you might write a B list book and I think that's probably the problem with a lot of biography that come out it's not necessarily that the writer isn't any good they're you know you've read their articles and you know that they're good but somehow it you can tell that they're sort of just trying to deal with a subject that can't be dealt with the access books you know I mean I'm thinking of books that I love uh, it have been written about musicians and maybe the first one that comes to mind is shaky on Neil Young and I mean, I wrote my book on a book on Neil Young, but Shaky just kicks it out of the window. I mean, Shaky's the best because for 10 years he had all the access. Then at the last minute, Neil Young, awkward bugger that he is, took that access away and it turned into fights, court things, everything. But Jimmy McDonough actually managed to keep, again, that's enough of a distance of like, I should be hating this guy and having my way with it in words. Like, but he didn't. He wrote a really, really revelatory book. So, so yeah, so the idea of doing Tom without uh, 
that kind of access. And I do kind of regret I didn't do the um, Johnny Cash book I was going to do. I did a book for um, a box set called Unearthed. It was a hardback book that came out with it. And it was based on interviews I did with, um, with John at his house on the 10th anniversary of his years with um, Rick Rubin as this producer and record company boss. This was set up by Rick and it was, we finished those interviews. That week was finished six weeks before John died. And it was also, it was six weeks after June had died that I spoke to him. So there was this little bit of time when he was talking and in a state of, you know, very ill health and of course in grief, absolute grief. And the idea was we would do a book for the box set and then we would do another book after we being Rick Rubin and I. But when Johnny died, Rick, who were, he and Rick were incredibly close, incredibly close. And he was broken. And it was like, it, it just felt so distasteful almost to put it out without the other person's involvement. And by the time, I guess, that time had gone by, everybody had thrown out their, you know, their uh, books on on um, Johnny Cash. Like, like I'm saying, this absolute slew of everything to do with either, you know, sleeping with Leonard Cohen or, or living with Leonard Cohen. Or being on Heater with Leonard Cohen. I can't keep up with how many of those have come out lately. Sylvie, maybe by now you'd prefer to write a book about someone who wasn't a musician rather than (laughs) you've written so much about musicians. Would you sort of consider taking up that challenge? No, not unless James Joyce came back from the dead or something like that. No, musicians are my people. It just took me all those years to get over the shyness and become a musician. But I feel much more at home around musicians than I do around other writers. Now, that's, you know, the writers who are my friends, that does not mean you. None of you, just the other scumbags. No, it's a, it's a thing where I guess writing is much more of a private activity, unless you're like a, on the Saturday Night Live comedy team write, of writers or something. Whereas musicians are more kind of, they want to jam, you know, it's much more of a thing of that. You know, if you hang out with a, a cabal of writers, you're not going to get together and write a short story. But you get together with musicians and you'll write a song or you'll just come up with something that keeps you going. Sylvie, I mean... You know, something that also interests me, I mean, you know, years ago that the death of print media was, you know, loomed large and was much talked about. But, um, you know, Mojo, which is your principal outlet for your journalism, I mean, seems to have have flown in the face of of that, you know, along with Uncut magazine. I mean, does that lead you to think that, yes, there is still, um, you know, an audience for the the good old fashioned, in the same way as, as... as printed books still massively outsell iBooks. I mean, is there, is there still a, a, a place for the, the good old-fashioned, you know, take it to bed and read it magazine? It's funny that, you know, the two men, the two magazines that you mentioned, uh, both pretty much their main focus is like really, really good long articles on what we call classic rock, you know, classic Americana or whatever. And so it's still for an audience I think mostly of the sort of the armchair you know people are at home with their armchair and their copy of the magazine which I love I mean I've got a big armchair and I've got magazines piled up next to it so I am also the armchair reader of magazines and love physical copies of stuff but um I don't know it's it's been very hard during the pandemic, you know, magazines have had a hard time because most of the ads that keeps them alive are ads for tours and nobody was touring. And so that means if there's not a 
page of tour ads, there isn't an empty page on the other side where uh, a, a writer can fill with some words of, of genius or thought or other. I think that, uh, I think time will tell. I mean, we're still in this pandemic, you know, it keeps on morphing and doing weird things. But at some point, we'll see. I think that I'm, I'm really proud of Mojo. I mean, I'm not a staff member. I was like, a, I'm a contributing editor. So I'm on the masthead. I've been there since day one. So I'm I guess I'm like the little kind of the little flying thing on the front of the Rolls Royce or whatever. I'm a mascot of some sort, but I, I do still write for them on a regular basis. And I think that they really do take the stuff seriously, even though there's often the same people on the cover, which a lot of people complain about. Also, a lot of other people don't complain about. It's uh, they find new things you know, new approaches and, you know, uncut, sorry, uncut, but you pretty much copied Mojo from the beginning. So, you know, you're pretty good, but only because we were better. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. I think, digit, you know, the digital world did come in with an absolute, you know, sort of carrying an Uzi and sort of killing everything in its past. I think what I dislike about some of the um, online magazines is that I don't feel that the writers are as trustworthy in some of the magazines. Some are really, really good, you know, and they also have more space than we do in regular magazines. I get very frustrated by those tiny little regular size reviews where you spend like, you know, <laughs> you write it, but then you spend two days trying to condense it to the amount of words that they want and still say something that's worth reading. But I think the digital did make rather a mess of things and it hasn't really, you know, the dust hasn't settled yet as to how things can survive. And it's the same though with like radio and stuff in the past. Most people would would kind of listen to the same maybe 10 radio stations or five radio stations, but now they're making their own radio stations. They're putting their songs they want onto playlists. And so there isn't this feeling that somebody outside is acting as a professional filter and saying this really is good you have got to hear this this is you know this is really worth it's going to make your life worth living or even your wife <laughs> worth living <laughs> and um I, I kind of miss that feeling of you know the rock journalist names you know who you trust as opposed to somebody who's writing for free or you know for, for six cents or whatever my life in a sentence <laughs> You're listening to the Rhythms Podcast, I'm Brian Wise, editor of the magazine. I'm joined by Stuart Coop to talk to Sylvie Simmons, renowned music writer and also a musician in her own right. And we continue the conversation talking about living in San Francisco, the fabulous Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival and other aspects of contemporary music. So whereabouts in San Francisco are you? Sylvie, I'm in, in the Mission District. Mission District, oh, great. It's, uh, I know, it's my favourite district, though. It's going through some hard times right now, you know, with lots of homeless. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Sort of not as, uh, as as sweet as it was in some ways, but it still is. I mean, it's got so much character. What made you decide to move to San Francisco? Well, it was just a whim, really. It was a sort of one of my crazy whims, and I didn't expect to stay as long as I did, but... Yeah. Uh, kind of life got in the way and uh, things and so I ended up looking up and seeing like ah, I should go back to England again sometime. I've spent a lot of time in San Francisco I really love it oh yeah usually go there every year for the uh, hardly strictly bluegrass festival I've been there oh that's right times, yeah. yeah which is pretty amazing which has probably got the best festival lineup of any in the 
in the world, I think, you know. It's just, a, in fact. Oh, I love it. I in love fact, it. I and, remember and... I probably went there after reading a review of yours in uh, Mojo magazine. About maybe, that festival. I, think, I know. Probably. You might have reviewed the very first one. No, it wasn't the first festival mm-hmm. because it was still, when I moved out here, it was uh, 2004. Yeah. And, they, and it had been going for a while. It wasn't it? as big. Yeah. It's grown over the years. Yeah, yeah. To be, uh, it's unbelievable. In fact, you know, maybe it grew a little bit too much. So maybe after this, it will settle down to something. I mean, it was nice having to have like two or three different stages, but it turned into this mammoth, know. you know. It's but it was wonderful enough. and free. I mean, can free, you imagine? I know. I know. I was really lucky that it was not long after I came out to San Francisco and I went to see Harvey Strictly pretty much yeah. as soon as I came out. And I was doing some writing for the San Francisco Chronicle and they said, uh, you know, who, who, who were really nice. They, they liked my Mojo stuff. So they said, who do you want to write about? And I said, I want to interview Warren Hellman because I love his festival and I know, want to know what's going on in his head. And uh, I was told that he didn't really like doing interviews. And I said, well, can you tell him like I'm a banjo player? <laughs> because <laughs> uh i lied i didn't say that you know the uke was my first instrument so i didn't lie but shortly before that i'd gone to a pawn shop and bought a, i saw a banjo and i started thinking oh i'll learn to play the banjo and uh as i played all the neighbors were complaining the whole bloody time you know in the flats because it's loud you can't play it softly it's like a drum but with twangy drum yeah. And so uh, anyway, I took my my little cheap banjo along and he had his fancy white lady banjo and we got on like a house on fire. And so that next year, he always gave parties for his um, workers or a party for Christmas party or holiday party uh, for the workers at his, you know, kind of financial yeah. Yeah. empire. And um, so uh, but he would make them listen to him like play <laughs> banjo before he gave out all of the big... <laughs> big kind of bonuses and he'd let them know I mean it was like, like you're gonna have to listen to this and his assistant became a really good friend of mine Colleen who was oh, in his yeah. band she'd been a musician so uh, she and I became like kind of bosom buddies until she moved back to Canada a little while ago and so what this first year after I'd moved out there they were going to do um at the party she was going to play her bass with him and sing with him and there was this um, singer-songwriter that was going to sing she was quite well known I won't diss her or anything but she'd like was a bit flaky and didn't turn up and so Colleen said like can you, you sing don't you and I said well yeah I sing in tune I mean most of the time and but I haven't got any you know I've only got this banjo and she, oh no he plays banjo so she lent me an acoustic guitar which I could play and so uh I ended up singing at his Christmas party <laughs> or holiday party with all of those people there and he was just so funny but you say the way he carried himself when we walked in the room he just looked like a, a sort of like a fairly lean kind of hard living man mm-hmm. he could have been a banjo player yeah, yeah. And there was this young guy with a German accent working at the uh, place that they'd rented for this party, you know, a sort of gallery place, and putting out that. And we were going to rehearse, and so this um, guy was really telling us off, you can't do this here, you can't do that. that." So he he sort of like pointed out the guy when he was talking to the staff and just said, I have problems with Germans telling me what to do. (laughs) Yeah, being a Jew. So it was hysterical. This poor guy was melting and 
probably lost his job afterwards or at least was given a good telling off. But he really came out as the, you know, I am the millionaire here. I'm the one paying your wages. Let me ask you just a question that I I, um, I was thinking about before when you were mentioning music writing and uh, you were talking about the way music writing had changed over the Mm -hmm. years. And Nick Lowe, in an interview, he said it to me, but he said it to someone else first, unfortunately, says, because it's a great quote. He hey, said that it's yours. Today, today's good was yesterday's mediocre. And I think that's a great description of the way people, uh, a lot of people respond to music, you know, the, the standard of music and everything these days. Um, do you think it's, it's kind of affected music writing and that this you mentioned that people are much more reluctant to sort of voice a strong opinion on things or a negative opinion. Well, I agree with a lot of what Niccolo says to start with without answering your question, which I will get to, because it does seem that, you know, certainly he and I grew up in an age of like a golden age of music. And music was changing as it went along and there was always something new. It always seemed to be better than the last thing. There was just such a very high standard of work. And the record companies seemed to be kind of supporting or or backing artists who were doing something different, something unique, which doesn't happen so much now because there's there's less money to go around, I think, in that whole business because people like getting everything for free now. I think that um, as far as whether that translates to music journalism, I think that that's probably part of it's probably the same problem uh, that you're talking about but it's really because music isn't quite the all or nothing thing it was when I was growing up and when Nick Lowe was growing up what we had was music we lived for music (laughs) you know we immersed ourselves we baptized ourselves in music you know we went along that whole conveyor belt of whatever came out we would beg borrow or steal or buy it somehow or other we would get that new piece of music and know it backwards And I think there just isn't that sort of perhaps sentiment amongst a lot of the new music writers. This means something, that this is important. This is God. This is philosophy. This is religion. And so, you know, if music is just something that's in the background, like everything else seems to be in the digital age and can be just accessed immediately for free and put into somebody else's mixtape without actually having to mix a tape, I think it probably has some sort of after effect in the literature on the subject. You know, what are the implications for print journalism? I mean, mean, Stuart and I, well, we've all got a sort of uh, a vested interest in this, and it's interesting to go into our news agents now and see the dearth of music magazines. I mean, we can get Uncut and we can get Mojo, um, and there are a few other specialist music magazines. But apart from that, there's, you know, as my son said to me yesterday, Dad, nobody goes into a news agent to buy music magazines anymore. I, I found that a little bit depressing. <laughs> or even newspapers. I mean, there's been, you know, if we're going to widen it away from music, there's mm. been a whole lot of kind yeah. of quite you know, quite justifiable complaints from the people who are journalists for newspapers that everybody is just getting their news online and doesn't want to buy it from anything local. So, 
you know, it's a very, very big change in the world. And hopefully, you know, it will be a case of it will balance back one day and there'll be more kind of literary pieces and, and important pieces that we can read and pay for. But you're right, everything is is changing an awful lot. And Nick Lowe's right. It does seem that there's a lot of mediocrity. But there's still a lot of bands that are coming out and putting albums out on their own. And uh, a lot of the things that I've liked most in recent years have been the, these kind of bands that are on tiny labels who you know are not making any money whatsoever and either have a patron of the arts or some job on the side that, or a very you know, sympathetic spouse that is allowing them to continue to make this music that still moves me incredibly. And, and Sylvie, I mean, the, the fact that, you know, Mojo and in Australia here, Rhythms Magazine, you know, have flown against this, this trend, you know, is that because... You know, their publications, you know, they're the, they're the last outpost for a, shall we say, ageing you know, audience who does remember those times when, you know, music was at the very centre of our very existence and everything else was just spokes, as I always think of it, you know, off that wheel. You know, is, is that, you know, is, is that it or...? You know, that would be a very sad ending, wouldn't it, if that is the case? Yes. So my, my optimistic side, you know, is, is thinking, no, this can't be true. Um, I don't know if you know this, but um, Mojo was actually a spin-off of another magazine, Q Magazine, mm-hmm. and it was one of those things where they just thought, well, you know, there are these people who really are still devoted to learning every single thing that they possibly can about, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young and the Beatles and whatever, and that they could still kind of bring in new bands and add things to it. And it was a way of leaving Q to go. It's kind of slightly more, um, I guess it was slightly more into mainstream pop music. You know, it would always be Madonna or um, Sting or somebody on the cover. Perfectly good records that were coming out. But they decided they could divide it up in the same way that, you know, magazine companies think, yeah, we could do that. You know, right now, pretty much every magazine under the sun, even if they're not very good at music, like kind of People magazine, are putting out specials on Frank Zappa or something. These things come out every five minutes. You go and look for a new magazine and they've just got something that, you know, is the history of the Beatles by somebody who knows nothing or a whole bunch of people who know nothing. But no, you could be right. And that's it. I will, you know, soon be putting a shawl over me and sitting there on an armchair and reading that and going back and playing my, you know, completely busted vinyl versions of everything I had at the age of 10. But it will be a sad end. I hope that it is considered just like it will bring people back to how great that music was, you know, how important it was, how those albums were like medicine, you know, they were there to heal you. They were there to like philosophy to teach you the way. Did you um, or have you put yourself, subjected yourself, um, embraced and loved the 75,000 hours of Beatles footage that which is online at the moment? You know, I'm going. I'm waiting for it till next week. I want to just do it in one long go. You know, complete like crawling on my hands and knees to <laughs> up. You know, on, a, on some sort of pilgrimage or something. I know I because I know it's something I'm going to have to not turn off. Mm-hmm. I was the same when uh, Paul McCartney was on with Rick Rubin. You know, if you ever saw that, that was not that long ago on Hulu out here. And I just had to sit up all night and watch it all in one go. So I'm such a huge Beatles nut. I need to have that time to sit there and, you know, kind of scream and cry and, you know, be in awe and take notes and then go back and watch it again, take more notes. Even if I'm not writing about it, I will take notes on it. 
And um, Brian, you've, you've watched the first first part, haven't you? I haven't watched any of it yet. I, I've watched the first couple of hours, and um, I, Sylvia, I was saying to Stuart that I found it remarkable that the uh, that uh, Paul, George, and Ringo were so tolerant of John sitting there in the rehearsal space at Twickenham Studios with Yoko next to him, making comments and singing along. And I could totally understand how if you were working on a project together in a, in a team and somebody brought someone else in who had nothing to do with the group, why people would could be upset. But they seem to be, so far, from what I've seen, incredibly tolerant of it. That's what I've been hearing. And also that Yoko was sitting around talking to Linda. So Linda must have been there too. You know, at least two wives were present and correct. So, yeah, I guess it's weird. And it must have been a very strange time for them. Clearly a very transitional time. You know, the, they were moving in different directions. And I want to see every minute of it. I can't really comment on it because I haven't seen it. Yeah, Yoko, I really admire Yoko and what she taught John. But... I'm not so fond of her as a singer. <laughs> well, the, <laughs> That's all I'm saying. The restoration of the film is fantastic. It looks great, and I, I need to immerse myself in it, and, and like you're, you're going to do to really appreciate it. But I was saying to Stuart also, I mentioned uh, an Alex Petridis' review from The Guardian when I was doing my radio show the other day, and people kind of took it as a personal insult that he had given a negative review as if I had reviewed it negatively and had to say it's not my opinion it's somebody else's opinion you know that Beatles fanatics are real fanatics aren't they I guess any band's fanatics are real <laughs> fanatics but you know I think there's a longer history of, of Beatlemania I guess oh and I was born and raised in London so I remember like hearing from like girlfriend at school I mean we were 11 or something at that time and it was like there's, there's rumors that that Paul McCartney lives this is his place in London so we would sneak off of school and like, stand outside a building waiting to see if Paul McCartney would come out and, or put his milk bottle on the doorstep you know to be picked up and I never did see him but I always tried especially tried to see John and I used to write them letters to their fan club you know they were like music journalist letters like all oh, that harmony on there sounded <laughs> and then you get occasionally get a picture back from them that was kind of fake signed or, or whatever. Yeah, I was, I, you know, I Beatles came along at just the right time to me when I'd abandoned all religion and like, these are my gods, completely, utterly, totally. That never goes away. I was also just going to change the subject a bit, Sylvia, so and ask <laughs> you, you know, like we, we've just gone through two years of, of COVID, which, you know, and the suggestion is that we might be going through more of it. Um, mm -hmm. But it, 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 and it has been terrible for the performing artists and, and that mm -hmm. side of the music business. But, you know, I just found an astonishing number of great records have come out over the last two years. And it seems like it, in no way has it been an impediment to the creativity and the songwriting and, and recording ability of, of, you know, an enormous number of people. I mean, has that, has that been, been your experience? My personal experience as a songwriter or my experience as a journalist? Both, both. As, um, as a journalist, I've been interested in some of the sort of odd things that people have come up with that they probably wouldn't have come up with otherwise if there hadn't been uh, a lockdown. For example, I really loved that Chrissy Hind, Bob Dylan mm -hmm. album. 
I just thought that, you know, there were a couple of songs that weren't completely to my taste, but generally speaking, there was a lot of depth and beauty in that. And that was one of those toss it backwards and forwards across the, you know, across the world via Zoom and stuff. Um, that was one and maybe something, I guess, interesting, but maybe musically not more to, so much to my taste was the Elvis Costello songs in Spanish album yes, he wasn't singing them in Spanish people who were from Latino backgrounds were singing them in Spanish but what a great idea that you could think you could do things like this so yes there's been some interesting things come out in the kind of indie world people still put things out I think they held on as long as they could hoping that they could get tours me too you know uh, when my album came out I didn't have any touring at all. It kind of came up to just, can you see if you can chat up every possible person that you know who does radio or, you know, hopefully TV or magazines. It's, it, was, it was hard. And I know it's been incredibly hard on musician friends in America where there wasn't for the longest time any way of getting any kind of unemployment money until good old Biden got in. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been rough in that way. I think that I think there's going to be a slew of really good albums coming out next year because at some point everybody's just going to have to hold their nose and jump and just assume that you've got to keep going. You know, how much longer can we live in this kind of state of self-lockdown or government lockdown or anything else, you know? I've had my three shots, so I guess I can stand a chance unless this new COVID turns out to be a you know, a sneaky little thing that'll get past the old vaccinations. But uh, there is, I think, this real longing for, for some sort of life, you know, to be something like normal again. Have you been out playing any shows at all in a couple of months yourself? I've done two, and they've been very short. One was uh, opening for Mary Gaucher, whose music I admire hugely and whose new book I really love. Um, I was like her opening act, but it was a very short opening act. It was outside on a very windy day where we both nearly got blown off the stage and in, uh, you know, the way literally by the wind. And I did a, a show of um, singing Leonard Cohen covers that was indoors with um, a, a chamber trio backing me. So viola, violin and cello. So that was lovely. And we had a big venue with like just a few people in with their masks on and we had the doors open. So this freezing wind was going in. My little hand was freezing as I was trying to play notes. But it was just a really sweet feeling. But I have still haven't gone on the road to uh, to promote Blue on Blue. So my last album, it just came out and some people were kind enough to play it. I hope a few bought it, but I haven't seen the royalties. <laughs> And how how did you find it? You know, in terms of your 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 own songwriting during during the last two years. I mean, a lot of people sort of just got very depressed and put their head in the sand and went, you know, woe is me. Other people found it quite a creatively, you know, enlivening time. I mean, did, did you did, have you been writing a lot of songs? No, I think you're absolutely right. And I found actually that people divided into two, two very extreme parts. Yes. One was the ones that. Like, as I say, mentioning Elvis Costello again, he does, I think he wrote about 90 songs or something as well as doing his uh, Spanish album and was having the best time of his life. And then I remember talking to, I think, various other people who just said that we've been in a brain fog. We haven't even been able to watch movies, you know, or we can manage as maybe a half an hour TV series. 
I tended to fall into the, the latter, and mostly just hoping it would go away. And so uh, I became very, an expert of everything that's been on TV. I've been watching TV an awful lot, read an awful lot of books. So, yeah, so um, I kind of fell into more of the latter department, especially for the first year of, of the being in, in lockdown. It was very strange because I live on my own. And so being in a bubble of one got very tiring and, and I became rather addicted to kind of Netflix Scandinavian crime <laughs> dramas, of which I am now could go on University Challenge if it still exists and answer every question and win no price. But I did, I have been writing um, some more songs this year and I had a few left over from the last album that I couldn't play because of my messed up hand I had to write some simpler songs to play to finish that album off so there is enough for another album it's just a case of just deciding when I can do it and when I can afford it because you know it's not I have to hope that uh, I'll get a record label again for this one and uh Sylvia if you if you haven't uh if you're not working on a book what are you working on now in terms of writing on on music I've been doing quite a lot of features as usual mojo as you say is one of my main outlets on that I've been writing some literary fiction it's not kind of crazy and dark <laughs> and mean like the uh two way for Ziggy book you know I seem to have my songs and my 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 kind of short stories and that seem to be melting into one sort of kind of inner monologue kind of dreaminess stuff and I've got have a few of those coming out in a Canadian literary magazine sometime soon and but the days seem to have passed pretty well I mean I haven't managed to you know write another book this year but I you know I'll come up with something I did start learning Spanish I just but I kind of you know I would do it online on my own in my bubble of one so I could at least speak to myself a bit in Spanish now as well as in English <laughs> can I say one more thing actually about the, my blue on blue album yeah is I kind of I'd been sort of I guess in the past I'd been very reluctant to kind of do that thing of like trying to sell yourself it's really hard especially if you've had another life as a, a music journalist but then I got very belatedly into the band camp game. And so I put up two albums of like one of them is like of kind of unreleased songs or or just different versions of them. And then I put up a, a demos album. I thought that was brave of me, just voice and ukulele. But I think there's probably a few ukulele fans that might like it and just put them up for five bucks each. And I managed to sell, you know, I think probably enough to get to number one in the charts right now. So I think I sent 30 copies. So this well, is good. 30. Yeah. That's well, it's, the, it's, it's yeah. top of the Americana charts for this month. It's interesting that you talk about promote, promoting the book. I'm surprised that you didn't go out on a tour or whatever, but it's it's interesting looking at writers' festivals and things, and I've mentioned this to Stuart before. You know, part of being a writer these days seems to be um, having to be a salesperson rather than, you know, people are more interested in your ability to sell something than your ability. Do you know what I mean? That, that you look at writers' yeah. festivals and they're all a particular type. If I, I don't know how to, uh, I don't want to sort of, uh, you know, stereotype them, but you look at writers' festivals and it's all about people selling themselves in a sense, isn't it? It is, and it's so strange because, you know, a lot of uh, musicians, especially singer-songwriters, and a lot of writers are really introverts, you know. Mm. We kind of can get up there and, like, if there's a microphone, you can do it. You can you can keep this up for a while. But, but the idea of this kind of constant self, yeah, 
I don't know, you have to be so self-aware the whole time and constantly trying to get a plug in for everything that you can. You have to kind of keep those things in mind. And it's is total, you know, from the old school way of looking at it is absolute whoring. It's, you know, just buy me kids and take me home in a wrapper. Mm. It's, uh, it is weird, but there's, that's what you do now. And I, I did notice, actually, I won't mention who it is, but a friend of mine who's kind of very well known in the Americana world and much loved and tours a lot, it's kind of gotten to the point where he really doesn't want to tour anymore because of COVID and of being at a certain age, but also not even wanting to be bothered to sort of do anything other than just make an album, mm. record it on his computer, put it up on, say, on Bandcamp. If he makes the money, fine. It didn't cost much to make in the first place. And maybe that will be another whole new range of, you know, genre of music, that completely homemade DIY person who is already a well-known artist, you know, a kind of real back to basics thing. And if anybody buys it, fine. And if they don't, it's no real big deal. You know, mm. they haven't spent that much on it. I hope you enjoyed our chat with Sylvie Simmons, not only an accomplished music author, but also an accomplished musician in her own right. As she said, you can find her music on Bandcamp. You can find her books, the usual outlets. Thanks for joining us on the Rhythms Podcast. We'll be back in a week's time with another podcast. Meanwhile, you can check out the magazine at rhythms.com.au.